All right, go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you, and good morning. Campus Outreach, as you know, if you've been on Facebook, they're out of town at a retreat, so we're missing like 40 people that usually sit right here. That's why you have all the extra elbow room today. Um, hey, if you have your Bible or a device with you that you use, go ahead and turn to John 17. It's a passage that we actually looked at last week. Um, for about two dozen weeks or so now, we have been in a series called Hero. Hero is a look at the book of John from front to finish as we see who Jesus is as clearly as possible through the eyes of the, of the evangelist John. Now, it's been a fascinating book, and as I said last week, Jesus was praying for his church in what I consider to be probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, prayers ever uttered on the face of this planet. And we catch him praying for a couple things. One of the things he prayed for is that you and I would be faithful missionaries to the city, that we would go as he came here. Today he's going to pray for you regarding something a little bit different. And so that's what I would like to look at today. So go to the 20th verse of chapter 17 in John These are the words of Jesus as he prays for those he loves, and he says this to his Father. Do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, by the way. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, it's a fascinating passage. I love this passage. Um, One of the things I'm most fascinated with is culture and how culture moves. I'm always examining two things, really, where culture is at and where culture is going. So our current location and where we're trending towards or where we're tracking towards. It's kind of fascinating for me, really. It helps me understand how to connect the gospel to people because the gospel is ageless and timeless. It has no boundaries to it. So um, it doesn't really evolve over time. It's fixed in all of creation and in all of history. What it meant the first time it was understood is the same thing it means today, yet it connects to people who are fluid. Because we are in a distinct time, and we are in a distinct age, and that does kind of move and, and morph and shift and change. So connecting a timeless, ageless gospel to a very fluid people, well, that's, that's not just the work of a pastor. That's the work of a Christian. So you have to understand culture a little bit to know how to do that. And I don't do that to be a better pastor, although I do think every good pastor needs to understand culture for that very reason. But I do it first because I'm a Christian. I'm a missionary. You know, Karl Barth, he used to say that, go ahead and take out your Bible and read it, and take out the newspaper and read it, read them at the same time, but always interpret the newspaper through the Bible. 
What, what he was saying is, is this, it's very interesting. He's saying that whenever you read about what's going on in the world, whether, now we don't really use newspapers as much today, but whenever you understand what's going on in the world, look at it through the lens of what God has done for us. That's how we should understand culture. So for me, that means how do I pray for this city? How do I interact with the city? Pop culture or just culture or societal trend over time helps me understand what is true for people today that might not have been true for the same people 50 years ago. So I have to keep up with things just like you do, right? I want to keep up with what the, lo- the latest technological trend is because it kind of gives us information about how people see themselves, just how technology is moving. Or who was the last person on carpool karaoke? Because that's who people are talking about, right? What athletes are doing off the field, what legislation is popping right now, What's on the local police blotter, movie trailers, what YouTube celebrities are putting out there and replacing news venues, music, everything, stock market, everything in between. What is culture doing? Where is it going? I want to know this because I want to know how culture sees itself. When the average person looks in the mirror in the morning, how do they see themselves? How do they define who they are? Because that's been fluid over time. Never more fluid than it is today. How does the average person see sin? What is considered a sin today? Where is going too far going too far? Where is the line crossed? What about righteousness? How does the average person view righteousness? How does one get that righteousness? What does a remedy to a sin look like? Is there even sin to be remedied? These are the things that are fluid. These are the things that are not the same today as they were in the 50s or the 20s or the 70s. It's changed. In the seminary training that I went through, it was in the field of anthropology, which is just the study of cultures. Um, I was in the school of missions, and with all the books they had me read and with all the professionals that they brought in, the one thing that really stands out on the horizon of all of it was the overwhelming understanding among anthropologists that society in the Western world is trending away from a communal, tribal, family mindset where you find significance to a singular, independent, solo way of finding significance. It's moving away from group, going towards me above all, right? Now, it's moving faster in the Western world. In other parts of the world, still a lot of your significance is kind of locked up in how the family's doing and how the tribe and how the community is doing. But really in the Western world, it's really, you can actually get significance away from family, away from tribe. Just a few generations ago, right, you might just pick up the family business. Mom and dad are farmers, you'll probably be a farmer too. And you'd probably be fine with that, understanding it as you grow up, Right? Stick to the family, stick to the community. Mom and dad make shoes for a living, you'll find yourself making shoes for a living, right? Significance back then, of just a few generations ago, was locked up in how is the overall doing, even at my cost. Not only would I maybe jump into what my uh, parents did, I would follow in their footsteps along the way and even, and even sacrifice myself for their good. So proof of this, think of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. If you've seen it, if you're not, come on now. You gotta go out and get that and watch it. So it's a wonderful life. You've got George Bailey, the main character, the protagonist in the show. What's he doing in the first 10 minutes of the movie? He's packing his bags. He's gonna go see the world and then he's gonna be an engineer. You can't contain him. He's like a comet just firing around. He's so excited. He's greeting everybody, overwhelming. His personality is over the top. And then right at the last minute at the train station, what happens? 
He has to make a decision. He ends up running the family business, which happens to be a bank. Right? Things have swerved since then. Anthropologists will tell you there are no more George Baileys. Now, I'm not saying that things were better in the old days, because they weren't. The old days were a mess, okay? Because people lived in them, and people are a mess. Just like people living in today's day are a mess. All the way back to Adam, by the way. Listen, there's no such thing as the good old days. I'm not here to say anything other than that. We've been a mess since Adam. And I'm also not here to say that our drift away from doing what our parents did is innately sinful. It's not, actually. Think about it. We live in a day and age where being innovative and entrepreneurial and kind of making your own ways is a lot easier than it used to be. You can get a college education without leaving your living room. You can, you can start a business right there without leaving your living room. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless to recreate yourself and rebrand yourself. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a really good thing. And society has made it easier. But my biggest fear, along with those other anthropologists, is that mankind is bending towards a solo fascination away from group identity at a quickening pace. It's happening fast. In other words, since Adam, we've always been kind of a self-above-others kind of creation. We've always been a little bit of a me-first-then-you-later type of an orientation. But now things are happening faster, and we dress it up as progress. We dress it up as something different than selfishness, which is what it is. And there have been some things that have sped this up, I think. Take, for example, the Internet. I'm not against the Internet. I use it all the time. Big fan, right? It's amoral. It's not an immoral thing. But what we can all agree on is that it has sped this up considerably because it's taken the globe and it has shrunk it down, right? You could be the whole world can see what you are doing at any time and your opportunities are endless. In fact, I think a lot of times online or even in the media, the biggest sin for you and me to create is just to be the same as everybody else. Now, that's something that we are taught to push away from, or even worse, being underneath everybody else, all right? I mean, think about the money that is spent, the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars spent trying to convince you through marketing that if you buy someone's product, you will be above the average. You will be better than everybody else. You will be above the noise and the static of the faceless mob that is around you in a very monotone world if you just buy this thing. Nike, Audi, Google, you name the company. So whenever they're sitting in their big boardrooms with the rest of the marketing team and they're scribbling something on a whiteboard, the next big idea, it is not to say, if you buy this, you will be extraordinarily average. In fact, if you buy this, you'll disappear and no one will even know that you exist. If you buy this, no one's even going to care in your life. They're not doing that. They're saying, if you sit in this Audi, even though it's a traffic jam that goes for miles, everyone's frowning, you won't be because it's an Audi. You've seen it, right? All the other cars are black and white except for yours, which is maroon, and you're inside with a big smile on your face. Listen, you could go to the gym, and everybody is hating their existence there except for you. You're making gains. You know why? Got Nikes on. That's what they want you to think. Trillions of dollars spent with the understanding that your biggest fear and my biggest fear is being washed into the masses and lost in the crowd. That is a big fear. And the companies know that, right? So 
our culture. Our culture, it prefers individuality over communal identity. It prefers standing out over blending in. It prefers rising above others instead of stooping down. It prefers me over us. It prefers me over you at all costs, at all costs. And this is the curse that Adam brought to us, bending away from disappearing for the sake of others, but driving forward to climb the ladder, even if it means climbing on top of everybody else. And listen, I know this so well. The reason I'm an expert in this is because when I look in the mirror, I see it in me. I have an an intense fear, like many of you, of being overlooked, being lost, being forgotten about, being insignificant. It's scary. The very idea of blending in, the very idea of being unknown, invisible, it's hard, isn't it? It's difficult. I don't think I'm alone. I think social media proves I'm not alone, by the way. Because media, social media, it's built as a platform to put your voice above everybody else's voices so that people can see it. And I'm not saying that's bad. Listen, we, we have babies. We celebrate things like that. We just closed on a house, and it was on Facebook, and everybody was high-fiving us on Facebook. It's exciting to do that. But have you noticed the evolution of social media? Remember MySpace? Right? It's still out there, by the way. Some of you are like, I know, I got an account. I was on there this morning. <laughs> MySpace is gathering dust in a box right now. Vine just joined it, right? See, anytime a social media venue comes along that says, I can elevate your voice above all the others, I can take what's going on in your life and make it very, very obvious to the world around you. As soon as we see one that does a better job than the other, we shift gears and push on. Something will replace Facebook. And then something will replace that thing that replaced Facebook. That's what's gonna happen. And you know why? is because they're gonna do a better job of taking our lives and elevating them just this much, just that much more. That's why I don't think I'm alone. So, I also think there's another thing that's accelerating this slip away from group towards solo living, and that is that to forfeit an individualistic experience feels very anti-American. It feels communistic. Consider how our country was allegedly blazed, right? All on the back of self-improvement, self-initiative, digging out our own destiny with our own two hands and pulling up our own bootstraps, me above everybody else. I'm going to be different. I'm going to look out for number one. So to become faceless, to just kind of go into the flow or maybe even be underneath everybody around you, well, that only works in Disney movies. But when Monday comes and we all clock in, it's me against you and I'm going to win, right? Because that's the American dream. That's the American dream. I've lost count on how many business professionals have told me to my face, Luke, it is impossible to be a successful Christian businessman. You're going to have to choose one or the other. You could be a businessman or you could be a Christian, but you can't really be a Christian businessman. It's just impossible, right? Listen. If you're on Facebook watching or if you're listening later on, listen, stop whining and read the Bible. It is full of people that made insane amounts of cash, were successful in the business world, and happened to love God and hold faithfully to his truths. And even better, it's full of people who gave up and actually took a loss in money, even at their own reputation, to once again be in love with God and hold close to his truths. That's a different sermon. I would love to preach it. 
But I'd like to get back and just say, because of Adam's fall, cracking you and me inside, because of our progressive culture, because of the internet, because of our national spirit, when we walk the earth, we have a steady IV drip at all time where we can benefit on the backs of others at the cost of others getting away from group, focusing on number one, and climbing whatever ladder happens to be leaning right in front of us at the time. That's just what we grow up in. It's just second nature. You know... When I became a Christian, it was mainly, it was mainly because God, in his grace, and this is beautiful how he did this, in his grace, he allowed me to get to the top of several of my ladders at a young age, get to the very top. The American dream was within my hands before I was even in my young 20s. I had it all. I had everything I wanted, and I was nauseated and very, very scared. I was scared. I had the American dream. And I was freaked out, and I cried out that God would save me. I didn't hit the bottom of my barrel. I hit the top of a ladder. That's how it looked for me. I cried out, and he saved me. How does the gospel change this solo orientation in us? The story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus, his living, his death, and his new living existence. How does that, the good news, given to us freely, how does that change a me-above-you attitude? Because that's what Jesus is praying about right here. That's what I'm most fascinated with. You see, when we become Christians, that slide towards self away from others, it kind of gets reversed and altered, but not totally. We have these default settings from whenever we came out of the the womb, and, and it takes a lot to reprogram those. That's the process of growth or sanctification, and it takes a while. But even newcomers to Christianity, and some of you are newcomers to Christianity, even, even though you've not been around for very long, you can see that two things that are radically changed when we become Christians are proximity and direction. So let me explain. So proximity, it just means distance. So I have a proximity to the stand, and the further I get away from the stand, the further the proximity grows, right? Well, our proximity changes. The gospel gathers us more tightly. Our, our quarters become a little bit more close. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you read the book of Acts. You get to chapters 2 and 3. You kind of get the feeling that they were really on top of each other and very often, right? Like, hey, <laughs> I'm seeing you guys a lot lately. Like every day, we're like eating together, hanging out together, we're reading to each other, we're praying together. Not sure I'm enjoying this arrangement so much. I like a little bit of me time. It's a lot of, we notice that the proximity changes and we get closer. Not only that, we were orphans and now we're gathered into a family, right? We were solo and now we're gathered into a group. We were alone and now we're not. We once did not belong and now we do. And now we have so many people that are close to us It's not just the proximity, it's the fact that we're responsible for them and they're responsible for us. (laughs) That's a game changer when it comes to enjoying community, isn't it? To be responsible for the person next to you. Sitting next to them, that's hard enough. Taking responsibility for them, that's a different level. The gospel changes our proximity, also changes our direction. Our ladders don't look the same anymore. We push all of our ambitions through the grid of what God has done for us, right? So instead of picking up the American dream, we pick up a cross. Things have changed. Everything's changed. It's a hard swing. That's why Jesus is praying like he is. I'm going to look at verse 20 again. 
We're not going to read the whole passage, just the first three verses. Jesus says this to his father concerning you and me. I do not ask for these only, meaning his 11 followers right then, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That's Legacy Church. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world, this is it, this is the closing pitch right here, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's going to be an important phrase right there in just a minute, right? But what we see right here is that Jesus joins us to him in salvation and then he joins us to each other. And that's what we call community. It's one of our three core values, We are an authentically connected community. And it's new to people who are new in Christ, and it's foreign. But even if you're not new in Christ, even if you've been a Christian all the way back to whenever you were just a little, little kid, it's still painfully awkward, isn't it? It is for me. Community's hard for me. Am I alone or is community hard? Community's hard. It's difficult. It's radically uncomfortable. It's hard even all the way back then, we romanticize in our mind how the old church, the original church, used to function, but it was hard for them too. We know that because the author of Hebrews had to write concerning them skipping things. Hear this, this is crazy. Verse 24 in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. It became a habit. The author of Hebrews sitting around with his friends. They're at Panera. They're in a staff meeting. Who knows? But then they start to discuss, has anyone seen the Smiths lately? I don't know. Not really. Something about soccer practice, and they got this going on, and they went out of town like five weeks in a row, and then they were sick for six weeks. And, but I don't ever see them in community group ever, and then they skipped out on this class. I don't know what's going on with the Smiths. It was becoming a habit. It's becoming a habit. It's not just an American thing. It's, it's a human thing. They were skipping church, they were skipping community group, they were skipping everything. It's becoming a habit, right? Why? Because going from me to us, very awkward. Very awkward. Joining my solo life to flawed people, it feels very inefficient. And then, I mean, take a good look at our family tree too, right? Full of weirdos, time sucks, emotional messes that take a lot of heavy lifting, It's not exactly easy. Or maybe you're the opposite and you came into God's family tree and you looked around and you felt like you were the outside looking in. Not that you were above everybody else, but maybe you were underneath everybody else. And when you look around, you see clean people doing clean things with a clean heart. Everyone's more talented than you. Everyone's more righteous than you. Regardless of where you find yourself on the scale and pecking order, can we all agree that it's difficult? So difficult that Jesus is praying for us right now. (laughs) He's praying for us. And to make matters worse and to throw a little bit more sand in the gears, we still carry a chunk of our old life. I'm just, for the sake of today, I'm going to call it a club mentality, okay? Club mentality. Anytime you join a club, it's under two ideas. Here they are, the golden two ideas. How can this help me, number one, and is the cost worth it, number two? You don't join anything unless it passes both of those questions, 
How is this going to serve me? And what kind of price tag is on it? I mean, do y'all remember a few years ago, really several years ago now, when Netflix dared to raise their monthly rate by $1? Do you remember that, that happened? From like an astronomical $6 to $7, I think that's what it was or something. And you would have thought, I mean, the whole world went up in smoke, didn't it? Are you kidding? Netflix sticking it to the consumer. I'm out of here. And everybody was leaving in this mass exodus. Why? Because for whatever reason, is it serving me? Well, $6 worth. What about seven? Forget it. Done. Done. Going to Amazon or whatever. Netflix found this out the hard way. You noticed all the box subscriptions coming out? New clubs, Harry's Razors, church software, any software. Things come, things go, based on how those two questions are answered. How will this help me? And is the cost worth it? And there's nothing wrong with evaluating fit for our life. That's actually a really healthy thing because we're stewards of our time, we're stewards of our money. But what happens, and this is where I'm gonna pivot, it gets toxic when we drag the club mentality and bring it into community. Then it becomes, is this going to serve me and is it worth it? Is this gonna help me get ahead? And how high is the price tag? Is it worth it? Let's look at how this develops over time because it usually first shows up whenever we look for churches to attend. And when I say churches, I'm gonna speak in our traditional sense, not in an accurate sense. An accurate sense is you and I, are, we are the church. But I'm gonna say when people walk in the doors of a service, what they're doing is they're asking in a big 30,000 foot view question, is this a church that can serve me and is the price tag too high? That's what we ask. All of us do it. I did it. Very first church I ever, well, I mean, I started planting them, and then you have to go after that. But before I started planting, when I joined my first church, my rubric was super, super theological and very impressive. You want to hear what it is? Are there girls? Are there girls? You could have had a flow chart. It would have looked like this. If the answer is yes, are there a bunch of girls, right? If the answer is no, I'm gone. If the answer is yes, the third question is, are they going to ask me to commit to stuff, right? Not the girls, the church. <laughs> Back then it was against all commitment, but, but especially the church. Are they going to want me to show up to stuff and volunteer and write checks? And to, I'm not going to do that, man. I just want to go where girls are at. Now, do you see how stupid that sounds and how carnal that sounds? Because it is immature. But ask yourself how simple it is to think on that level. Because every single one of you walked through those doors at one point in time, did you not? Did you not at least subconsciously look around the room and say, are they going to be too old, not old enough? Is it going to be too big, not big enough? Are they going to be hip, but not too hip, but a little bit of hip, you know? Are they going to be multicultural, multi-socioeconomic, multi-age? Are they going to be reformed, but not too reformed? Are we, I mean, did you not catch yourself looking for fit? How is this going to serve me? It's natural. It's part of who we are. You know, it's funny because when we first planted this church, we had way too many families for the college students. They were leaking out the back door pretty quick. And when I say we had way too many families, we had like four, right? So when we, <laughs> when we launched, we had like four families. It was like us, the Gentries, the Normans. And I don't even think the Normans had any kids at the time, you know, but we were way too old. It was like going to church with your parents or something. So college students would come, they'd look around, and they'd be, they'd be outie. We wouldn't see them ever again, right? But now... 
Do you guys notice the deficit of 30 college students? The average age of this room just shot up like seven years because they're all at a retreat. Now when we have families come in with kids, they look around and they say the opposite. Feels a little young in here to me. That's the way it's always going to be. Is this going to serve me? And how much is it going to cost? You know what's interesting? As much as we look for individuality and a personalized lifestyle, whenever we look for church community, we look for sameness. <laughs> we look for the opposite. We don't want it to be unique. We don't want to be individuals. We want everyone to look like us. Now listen, choosing a church, it's a totally different subject, probably not meant for the pulpit. It would make a fantastic class, though. But I will tell you, of all the things that should not make a decision for you on what church to call home, it should not be on the appearance of how a people may serve you to get down the road. That's not in the matrix, friends. That's just not. That's just goofy. Yes, look for a place where life can be found. But better yet, look for a place where you could die for your neighbor where you could lay yourself down and disappear for the sake of the person next to you, even when they don't deserve it. Because that's a, that's a biblical ideal. But what if we were to take our proximity and then shrink it and get a little bit more close quarters? What if we were to go from seat to seat to shoulder to shoulder in a living room or on mission? Now the questions get real. We're still asking the same basic questions in our heart, Will this serve me and how high is the price? But now it sounds like, how many kids do they have in this? Are there a lot of kids in this community group or not a lot of kids? Do their ideals line up with our ideals? Do they vaccinate or not? Do they homeschool or not? Do they work out or not? Are they gluten-free or are they not? Are they weird or are they not? Is this the artsy group or not the artsy group? Is this the missional group or the kind of not-so-missional group? What, what is going on in here? We start measuring by ideals, kind of a match. Am I going to feel weird bringing people into this or not? Will the conversations carry themselves or do I have to work? Are they going to ask me to commit, like bring chips and salsa every single week? That's crazy. Who does that? There's still questions, though. But what if we were to collapse the proximity just a little bit more? Now we're not shoulder to shoulder. We're kneecap to kneecap. Now we're looking at each other. We, we would call those here our DNAs, right? Our DNA groups. So... Now things are real. You're in a car together, no getting out, no, at high speed, stay in the car. Or you're across the table at a, at, a, at a coffee shop or a pub or something like that, or you're in a living room, do you still not ask the same questions? Is this gonna serve me, and how much is it gonna cost? They just sound a little different, though. Will they judge me when I tell them what's in my heart? Not all of what's in my heart, but like 10%, because no one really tells anybody 100%, right? But what will they do with that? Are they going to dump me when they find out how screwed up I am? Are they going to turn on me when I fail them? Are they just going to let me coast, or are they going to push me? Right? I hope you're catching something, because I'm laying it on awfully, awfully thick. I, I am less concerned about whether someone plugs in. I want to know, when someone plugs in, who's benefiting? Is it me above everybody else, or is it everybody else at the cost of me? Who is the beneficiary of plugging in? That's all I really care about. Because close proximity with selfish living, that's an elevator. Everybody's standing, awkwardly looking at the same direction, not looking or starting any small talk, waiting, just counting the seconds, right? Awkward, awkward, awkward air. That's what church feels like for a lot of people. That's what it feels like for a lot of people. 
If you're plugged in somewhere, here, somewhere else, and you're still asking the same broken questions, will this serve me and is it worth it? I want you to listen to Jesus' prayer. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for us. It's possible that some of us are in very deep community and we are still riding the solo me first wave. Still us above all. We're connected, sure, we see each other, sure. But the second it gets awkward or tough, I'm bailing, right? Let me put some more skin to it. I've said before up here, my favorite fictional book of all time or fictional story is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I've read it several times. I think it's a great work. It's been always very helpful for me. By the way, in it, the monster's name is not Frankenstein. It's just monster. He's actually not given a name in the book, which is actually noteworthy in and of itself. He was, he was nameless his whole existence. Frankenstein was the doctor's name who had a bout of thoughtlessness, carelessness, and was selfish and created the monster without even thinking about the ramifications, right? The monster goes along stitched with other parts. In the book, in the original story, he's very powerful, very fast, just not much to look at. Just not much to look at. That's why he was called a monster. And when people looked and when they shrieked and when they gasped, right, it's because it revealed the carelessness and the thoughtlessness and the selfishness of the creator. That's kind of the book. I'm afraid that the church looks a little bit like the monster in Frankenstein. We're all stitched together, we're connected, yet not super awesome to look at, right? And it's definitely not revealing a beautiful picture of who our creator is. We've become Frankenstein's monster. Jesus says something fascinating in this passage. He says that when people see us, the world sees us living one, you and me, you and the person next to you, when we're living one, closely connected and directed towards each other based on the truth of the gospel. And they look around and they say, God must be true and Jesus must be good. They will know that Jesus is the real deal. We, in how we connect, paint a picture of what God has done for us. There is a lot on the line. There's a lot on the line. My biggest fear, not just for legacy, but for any church, especially in my city here, is that we show the world a body with no chemistry or harmony, just a bunch of stitched together parts that were kind of forced together and they don't really function very well. Even worse, it makes our master look like he's thoughtless and careless and selfish. I think we might be doing the, the opposite. That's why you find Paul being, if anything, abrasive and blunt with the church of Corinth. You get all the way to the 12th chapter of Corinthians, and it basically sounds like this. Hey, you guys are all different. We get it. You're supposed to be fitting together like a body. Not like a Frankenstein, but like a body. With Jesus as the head. And when you all honor each other and function along with each other, then the whole world looks on, and it brings glory to Jesus. That's what we see. Because by and large, this church was gaining a reputation, not for looking like a beautiful bride, but for looking like a sketchy monster or looking like a club, right? Complete with fees and dues and meetings and attendance and announcements and coffee and stickers for your car or whatever else. And you can get all that at the YMCA or your HOA, you get that anywhere. The church's tight grouping and invasive living, that is meant to wow the world. When, when the world sees us and how we live together, it's supposed to be fascinated 
blown away, mystified, without answers. Just, I don't know how you guys do it. That's insane. You did that? No way. Who does that? That's what it's supposed to do. Knoxville is supposed to see you and me and say, man, these guys are different. I don't know if I agree with everything that they say, but I'm going to check this God thing out a little bit more because I can't live like they're living. Something's true about this. The way they act around each other, it's just nuts. Never seen it before. It's all powered by what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is very simply that Jesus deferred his self-preservation for you. For you and for the glory of his Father. Now last week we saw, and you can always go back and listen to it, last week we saw that when Jesus asked to be glorified, he was asking for the cross. Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. He was asking for the cross. That's one thing that we saw. Before he would be lifted to God's right side, he would be lifted up on a cross, and this was to build a beautiful community, not a monster. It was to build a church that would connect the same way he would connect. And not only would we be sent as healthy, faithful missionaries, we would be connected to one another as healthy community members, the church. That is what this chapter is about, the entire chapter. He's praying for us right now to be faithful church members, community members. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. And he knew this. That's why he spent so much time on it. But it would be powerful, and he would show us how to do it with his own life. That's what we see Jesus. If you were to condense it, he's saying, Father, give me the cross. Give me the cross. And I'm praying that you would help these guys stay solid and faithful to mission and solid and faithful to community. Because then, Father, when the whole world looks on and sees it, they'll know that you sent me. That this gospel thing is real. They'll know it. Jesus would not put self first. He would not climb the ladders of mankind. In fact, the only thing you're going to find our hero climbing is a cross, and he'd be demolished by it. He'd die by deferring his self-preservation. And this is our mark. He would die for community. This is our mark. It's our true north. He'd die, and if we're going to do community well, we're going to die too. We're going to die too. We'll have to die to self-preservation. We'll have to die to self-focus. And we will have to prefer each other at our own cost. And when we do this, the world sees something very, very different than a club or a monster. The world will see the gospel. See the gospel. I like how Paul says it in Romans 5. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, I'm going to come back to that in a second, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Gospel community is cross-laden in nature. It's cross-laden. You can't do community well unless you have a cross on your back. You can't do it. It just can't be done. You have to have it. You will have to pick up your cross and lay down self to do community well. Any other attempt is just antithetical to the gospel. Coming in and treating everybody else as if they're stepping stones to help you get down the road, antithetical to the gospel, right? Coming into anything and saying, how will this serve me without any consideration about how you can invest and serve something else? It's antithetical to the gospel. 
It is showing the world something different than what Jesus is praying for here. Is it, am I coming across harsh today? Because there's a lot on the line. I feel like I am, but I feel like it's needed. Not because we're a bad church, but because this is important that we build well for the right reasons. You know, I have a, how should I explain this? I have a rough relationship with the buffering sign on Netflix. Have you seen that before? It gets up to about 99% and then it just kind of stops for whatever reason, forever. Maybe YouTube does that. You're like, buffering? Okay. Like, to when? Like, anytime soon? Do I have time to go to the bathroom or is it just going to come on? I mean, what's, what's the story, you know? It's odd how much that makes my blood boil. My wife, she's, she's always like, it's not that big of a deal. They're, I mean, think about the technology that's moving through the air. And I'm like, I, 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 I get so mad. I get mad. And I know you do too. Because this is what they're saying in that buffering sign. What they're really saying is, is hey, we're working really hard to make you happy. Lots of people are watching our service right now, and we want to stream content video to you, especially this episode. So if you just hang on tight, we're going to serve you well because we're all about you being happy. That's what they want you to think. That's not what I'm hearing, though. I'm hearing, yeah, while you're sitting there, everybody else is enjoying that episode, but you're not, and you probably won't, right? Because right now we're sticking it to you, and all of us in the Netflix office, we're all having a great laugh at your expense. So enjoy that, sucker. You're going to get the bill in the mail, you know? And that's why my blood goes through the roof. Buffering? Come on, buffering. Gospel community is paying very heavily into people who are going to buffer for a long time. They're just going to keep buffering. No new episodes, no great content, and the fee is going up. That's gospel community. When you drive to your calm group, or minister to the city with your calm group, or experience a DNA or a tight life-on-life -life experience with someone else, or meet up with lunch. I mean, why do you belong, not, not do you belong to a people, why do you belong to a people? Is it because the club is working? Or is it because you're investing and in dying to make those around you the beneficiaries? Who is the beneficiary? Are you becoming one with the people you're in touch with, or are you just a disjointed, stitched-together part that kind of looks like it's doing something, but it's also kind of ugly, too? At what point are the fees going to get too high? At what point does this become too awkward, and you're like, done, I'm gone? When does all this happen? Whatever you are trying to gain, the gospel has already given. Whatever you're trying to gain, by being solo, me first, at all costs, up the ladders, no matter what. The gospel has already given that to you. You're reaching and grabbing something you're never going to get in your hands. You are free, the gospel says, to be failed and to be dropped and to spend your life endlessly investing in buffering people. You're free to do that. You're free to do that. Does that sound odd? Because God has already done this for us. I was praying this morning, and God was reminding me how long I've been buffering in some areas. <laughs> I'm not really delivering content. It's taken a long time. But Jesus values me. Can we do community based on how he brought us close to him? Because if you hear one thing, hear that being connected is not the win. It's not the win. Being connected where others benefit at your cost even if they never deliver good content. That's the win, man. That just smells like the gospel. And when the world sees that, 
means something very different, does it not? I mean, if we were all just incredible people all the time, it's super easy to invest, right? I'll invest, I'll get a return on my investment because you're super awesome, so you're worth my... But what if I invest all my time and you aren't? The world sees that and it says, why? Why would you do that? Let me tell you a story about what God has done for me. Are you kidding? Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this out. I've gone a little longer than I like to go. I will say this. One day our king will come to collect us. He's going to come and collect us, and then guess what he's going to do? He's going to draw us into even tighter quarters, tighter than you are now, and it's already uncomfortably tight, except then sin will be removed, and we will actually enjoy that. I'm going to read this over you. It's Revelation 19, and then I'm going to pray for you. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming to collect a bride, you and me. He's coming to collect us. Listen, some of us need to repent today as we worship. You need to be repenting in your heart because you're probably a lot like me. And it's really hard to disappear for the sake of somebody else. It's really hard to lower and stoop and just become part of the noise and not be exceedingly awesome in front of everybody else for the benefit of somebody else. It's hard for that. But that thing that you're hungering for it's a sickness. There's a crack in there. And the gospel is the only thing that will ever really satisfy you. So it's got to be repentance. Listen, some of you, you've been investing into buffering situations for a long time, and you're getting tired, aren't you? I just want to say thank you. Thank you for not quitting. Thank you for not flipping out. Thank you for not bailing on people. When you stick to people, when they are not worth you sticking to, you paint a picture of what God has done for us. And if you need help, pray. Because we have an interceder, right? Jesus is interceding at God's right hand. For what? For you to be faithful in community and faithful on mission. You have someone that understands. You have someone that is praying for you now. When we ask God here in a moment to help us, we're just joining a prayer that's already been going. Jesus is already praying for that. He's ahead of us. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I thank you, Father, that I was buffering. I was selfish. I was clumsy and awkward and self-focused. And still, still, you mystified me with your gospel, bringing people around me that invested in me for such a long time, and I had nothing to give. And you're doing that in this house right now, in this city, in this church, and in other churches, you're doing that same thing. Even this morning, I know that people are being radically born again, radically born again. Father, the fact that you pour any love into us is amazing. Father, help us. By the power of your spirit, relate to one another in a way that paints a realistic picture of you. 
Not that we would be a monster, but that we would be a beautiful, picturesque image of the gospel. And Lord, help us be satisfied in the fact that you have stooped and you have cost yourself at our benefit for our good, and we are free to do the same. We are free to do the same. I don't have to clamor above everybody else. We don't have to clamor to be number one because we're totally satisfied in you being number one. You are glorified and you are totally glorious, so I need not chase it myself any longer. Lord, we pray for those who need to repent today, God, that you would make their hearts soft, that you would give them good words to pray, even, even outwardly and openly in front of others. Father, for those of us who need an encouragement, Lord, that we would turn to one another and ask for that encouragement. And then, Father, for those of us in here who just need you, maybe not even saved, maybe very far from you and don't have a residing love and joy in you, Father, that you would reach their heart, that they would see in this text that you have asked to be glorified. You have asked for the cross. You've put down the ladders. You've picked up a cross, not for the American dream, but for your dream. Lord, you were so good to us that you would rescue some in this house today. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you. It's in your name we pray, amen.